My friend Marianne made the wild change in her life's trajectory when she decided that instead of being a nurse from the province, she wanted to be a high-caliber lawyer in Manila. That journey took her to a field of practice that centers on novel technologies like blockchain, video games, virtual assets, and complex transactions. I do hope you enjoy today's episode. Okay, Marianne, welcome to my podcast. Hi, Rami. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Uh, for the benefit of the listeners, you mind introducing yourself very quickly so they can get a, they can get to understand a bit of who you are and why you're on the podcast. Okay. So I'm Marianne Vansenbrook. I'm a lawyer. And we were actually schoolmates with Rami at the Nail Law School. I originally came from Dumaguete and then I went to law um, in Manila. And then eventually ended up in working for one of the largest law firms in the Philippines, Puno and Puno Law, where I specialized in corporate and fintech law, which deal and dealt with a lot of companies involving uh, financial technology, the blockchain, such as eToro, Square, Ripple. And I also was able to meet other like-minded lawyers. Uh, right now, I am working for, or I'm set to work for a company called Engine, which is deep into the blockchain and NFT space, and I think we will talk more about that later. Yeah. So, uh, actually, one of the things that's particularly interesting about your background, Marianne, is that you came from Dumaguete first, and that you did you came to the law, or at least the life of the law, from a very non-traditional background, you actually began your journey in your higher education as a nurse, right? Yeah. Can you help us? Uh, can you help us chart a course from being a licensed nurse to uh, eventually deciding to go to law school? And by the way, for the benefit of the listeners, Marianne topped the boards the year she took it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I did. I, I placed third in the nursing board exam. So something I'm very proud of. Off out of like 35,000 other takers. So that's something I'm proud of. But uh, let's, I think we have to go back a little bit to my childhood. So um, you can look at all the yearbooks I've had, like from elementary, high school, whatever yearbook you could get your hands on. It was always, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a doctor. And then, so eventually, like naturally, like you take a allied health course, like nursing, and that's what I did. However, I realized... Um, I've always been, how do I say this, really active in extracurricular activities. And that came to head in my third or fourth year in nursing, where I eventually became the student co- student government president in Silliman University. And it was through that experience that I met a lot of lawyers, a lot of different um, people. And I realized that nursing and the medical field wasn't for me. But time naman kasi, like, you've already done three or four years of that. And, like, I just wanted to finish it until the very end. So, since it's time, I said, sige na, I'll just stop it. <laughs> Don't gago. <laughs> <laughs> Sobrang gago. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, yeah, I knew it. I knew then. I just really wanted to finish it. Um, kasi, I mean, you started this. Why not finish it until the very end? So, after I took the exam, uh, I applied to law school. I actually only applied to Ateneo because for me then it was Ateneo or Buzz. And then, like, I got in. So that's how it all started. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, the the is, is is it like something to do with your personality? Like what why why what do you think draw you into law as opposed to the path of less resistance, which would have been possibly to go to med school and arguably be just as academically accomplished? Yeah, I think it also had to do with my personality. I've been told, and I think I do have a stronger personality, which might suit the law more. Well. <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to be um kind in the description. I'm not sure kind of the word. But yeah. I think like the law and like my personality like really fits uh better than the medical field if I have to say. And it's not that I mean I it, it could have honestly gone either way. It's just that like the work that I do now in law honestly is something I really find fulfilling. Uh that's something that's something that I did not expect I would find this early in my career. And it's something that I'm not able to imagine if I went into med school. I'm sure there's like tech and all, but I think like being able to do it like with documents and uh, contrast, it's really right up my alley. And that's something that I'm very happy I get to do. Well, you know, that there's something to be said about like that ability to take like your academic rigor into like multiple disciplines. Like if you look behind me right now, you'll see like two little orange boxes. Uh, this is yeah. uh, those are 3D printers that I'm using to try to mock up designs for like our manufacturing company. So nice. hopefully, yeah, yeah, hopefully we can we can do something with uh, with that. So, uh, you know, there's generally something that's uh, required, I think, of intelligent people that you keep yourself open to these new experiences and to the possibility of, uh, well, applying your uh, mental rigor, your mental ability towards new and more exciting challenges. So talking about those new and more exciting challenges, you worked in a fairly reputable law firm, right? Actually, a very reputable law firm in Puno and Puno. Uh, what was that like? Well, it's it's like any other big law firm in the sense that the R's are long and good work gets rewarded with more work, <laughs> if that's how you want to call it. But it's also very, I don't know, I really learned a lot, if that's how I would have to phrase it. Like you basically take a law graduate who has never really entered the legal field before, at least in a practical level, and one of the things I really learned from the firm is that uh, you can, it doesn't matter if you haven't really like done a field of law before, you have, if, if a matter comes to you, if something you've never done before comes to your desk, you always have the ability to research it and find out at least what the law is and how the law is to be applied. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways that um, being in a firm provided me that um, before before all of it like it was always very um, anxiety inducing to say like if like if it's something you've never encountered before like how do I even tackle this like how do I even do the first step and I think like the law firm really allowed me to see that there are going to be so many instances of this like you don't really know where you're going to draw the answer from sometimes you don't even know what law applies but then that experience helped me see that doesn't matter if you don't know. I mean, you'll always have the ability to research it or ask people who have done it before. And yeah, so that I don't know. I think for me, that makes it really, um, makes me a little bit more confident of my abilities as well. Like no matter like what new matters there in front of me, I can eventually find a way to resolve it. 
Mm-hmm. So you mentioned like the diversity of the challenges that can be presented by the legal profession, and of course they are manifold and they are they are very varied in the different kinds of challenges that you can be confronted with. So uh, you always went back to I think it was Attorney Richie Pilares, no, who always sort of guided you through the profession. I think I think you she was your mentor, and I, I would always see her enter our dialectic whenever you whenever we talked about how difficult class was from the time that she became your person's professor. Uh, how important is it to have the role of someone like a mentor in your life? What is that like? Uh, and how does it how how far do you think it helped you or what percentage of your success that you currently have now or you currently enjoy now can be owed towards that? A lot actually. Like um I think one of the most important things a mentor can like attorney Richie has helped with is to really put you beyond your comfort zone. Like she would uh sign matters or stuff to me that I would have previously never done before. Like, I remember my first day in um, Ituno, she asked me to review a service contract. It was a little bit lengthy. And, like, at that point, I've never, like, held a service contract for, like, a renewable energy company at the time. So, like, it's intimidating in the sense that you're really put far out of your comfort zone, but it's also reassuring that she trusts you to be able to deliver this. And, like, you know she's always there to support if you have any questions. So I think, like, you grow faster that way and that you're put in situations where um, they're really out of your comfort zone. But also knowing that if you look back, like, she'll she'll still be there, at least to, like, guide you to where you can find the answers. Because obviously she's also... And in so many other matters. But yeah, I guess like that that kind of aspect of it and allowing me to do or allowing me to um, enter into matters where I was interested in, that's something that really uh, that I really owe to her. I mean, even the whole fintech blockchain space, like the the, co- the company or who no news then and at least after near Gila, I was really interested in tech. So when these kinds of memos started coming in, um, she asked me if I was interested in doing them. And I said, of course, of course, I was very interested in, in doing this kinds of things, um, especially when it's related to fintech and block, the blockchain. So, yeah, it basically grew from there. And then now, like, I'm seeing my career, like, it's going through that um, through that space. And I eventually see myself growing in this space as well. I think that's that's a pretty, pretty large impact on my, my career. So yeah, I'd say pretty big. Mm. Uh, so you, you mentioned something, uh, particularly, right, blockchain, which is like a strange thing to have to interface with the legal profession. Like it's 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 honestly hard for someone outside looking in probably to uh, define exactly how blockchain might intersect with the law. So you, you uh, advised very large companies with a lot of capital that are working in the Philippines with very novel concepts. What does lawyering look like at that level? So I guess one of the more common questions is that a lot of these companies want to operate in the Philippines, right? So uh, they obviously want to know what apply, what laws apply to them, what they have to comply with. And the challenge right now, for not only for these companies, but for the regulators as well, is what's happening is the law is actually playing catch-up to all these novel new ideas. So recently, I think it was in 2017, DBSP actually um, released rules governing cryptocurrency exchanges in the Philippines. So they're actually governed similar to remittance companies. So you call them money service businesses. 
uh, that's the general umbrella term that applies to all these kinds of companies. And recently, it's um, been further defined or refined into what you call a virtual asset service provider. So I guess these are the things that the companies try to look at, like how they can be compliant with what the laws are. Because right now, the fintech and blockchain space, it's really more of a regulatory sandbox in which um, you try to see if this works and then you try to see if it doesn't and all. So like there aren't, there are, there are regulations regulating it. <laughs> um, but it's more of, a, other than this basic um, set, BSP registration, registration with the Anti-Money Laundering Council, data privacy issues, you really have a regulations that are more directive rather than concrete. You have to have this and it should look like this. So that's where like both the regulators and these companies are are right now. But I think like if there's one thing like most of the companies that I've dealt with have always like had this willingness to comply at least with the law as it is stated here. Or at least at this very early stage, try to see um what they can and get get away with or if they can they have must comply with. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of ways in which uh, the law is like large and exciting, you know, like especially me, like when I got to review a transaction that was worth something like half a billion pesos, I was like, I was so flattered that I get to have that kind of input on like large, very large transactions, large amount of money and like to be able to participate in that level. But uh, it's not always the case, right? Uh, sometimes the law is mundane, repetitive. And in what ways is it like that in like a large law firm? Like, what are the things that people don't often think about when they're imagining advising these uh, large deals? <laughs> yeah, well, they don't think about the not- the notarizing process of it and how it's just signing <laughs> millions of papers over and over again with your signature. So that's, that's a little <laughs> rote and um, mundane. But I think that's the thing with the firm. Um, you really never... It's, I can't overstate, but you really never know what you're going to get on any given day. And if there was anything mundane about it, maybe at the very least it was corporate minutes um, discussing what the board of directors uh, decided for a certain meeting and all. But other than that, you don't really, like you really see, I mean, it's a contract. Like you see a lot of contracts, you see a lot of memos, you see a lot of transactions. But most transactions is really alike. So I can't say there were many mundane moments. More, how do I find an answer to this moment? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So uh, you probably, did you have much of an idea of technology before joining like these large law firms? Well, a little bit. Like I was always um, tinkering, dabbling, like video editing, audio mixing. And I always like wanted to find apps that would make my life easier, software a software like that, like how it would um, help me make my life faster. So, for example, I would use uh, Microsoft Power Automate to automate some documents like letters with their letterhead and, and like simple stuff like that. So, like, it's always been something that it's not a big part of my practice, but it's always something that started as sort of a hobby for me and that I, I really embraced how it would make our lives easier and like basically yeah make it interesting i mean sometimes it's the, the whole process of um 
programming um, the Microsoft Power Automate workflow actually takes much longer than if I just did it like directly on the document itself. But the, the whole process of figuring out how it works and how like when you get it to run and it just auto populates um, certain fields for you like that that brings me a lot of joy actually. So like being um in a industry now that allows me to like see it firsthand like not just my very paltry party tricks when it comes to Microsoft Power Automate and similar programs that's something that um. I'm really very excited about. Mm. So, uh, just so that we don't uh, skip over the very important uh, topic that you brought up, which is blockchain, uh, do you mind like explaining from a practitioner's perspective, like what blockchain is, and maybe just give us a give us a insight into the surface level legal implications, right? That that you know constantly come up and will factor into any analysis. So, I think we'll start with uh, what blockchain is. So from the word itself, it's basically a uh, chain of blocks where every block records like information about certain transactions. And these blocks are connected usually in chronological order. So it's basically a digital ledger of all the transactions that have occurred on that, um, on that space. And basically what it is, is that it records everything um, and the, the computers that record those things have a similar history of transactions, and these are validated by those same nodes or those same computers. So it's actually constantly updating itself. So, like, these have, you've seen a lot of, like, real-life applications for this, especially when it comes to money transfer and crypto. So you have um, countries like El Salvador, um, actually adopting Bitcoin as legal tender. And then you also have um, companies like the new company I, I have, I'm joining now, which has a lot to do with NFTs, non-fungible tokens, which are bas- basically like uh, digital assets, which are unique in value uh, compared to fungible tokens like Bitcoin. So like you see so many, like right now, we're still seeing early stage applications, but I honestly feel and I honestly believe it's really the next revolution when it comes to um, how how the internet was a revolution during our time. I, I really feel like because of how fast everything and how everything can be verified and traced on the blockchain, it really is the future. And I'm very excited to be part. I'm, I'm saying this a lot, but I really am excited to be part of this whole thing. Yeah, like uh, one of the things that I used to say in one of the previous episodes of this podcast was, wouldn't it be nice if uh, we we required that cash disbursements for government money would be made like on the on a blockchain network, and so like it would be it would be very easy to trace uh, where where the public money went, uh, yes. and then especially in light of this uh, new formally scandal that's occurring, uh, that that insight mm-hmm. becomes particularly more poignant. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, in light of uh, the regulatory framework that exists, no, like how difficult is it to set up an e uh, e money intermediary, a contract for difference platform, or a uh, uh, blockchain, uh, sorry, uh, uh, a crypto exchange? Like, like how, what is the legwork like that like, and how difficult is it? 
Okay, so you have basically different levels here in the Philippines. The easiest to set up is an operator for payment system. So when you think about entities which would allow you to, um, for example, you have an online platform which would allow you to pay other businesses for certain services or other or disburse salaries of certain individuals. When you're looking more at a B2B aspect, usually this requires just a registration as an operator for payment system with a BSP. That's relatively simple. So that takes around like uh, one to two weeks. And it's the where you get caught up usually or where you get um where it takes quite a while is when you register with the SEC. So that usually takes I'm sure you're very familiar with this. Uh, that that usually takes like one to two months, depends on like if there it hits any snags in the way. So that's really where the difficult part is because registration with, for example, the National Privacy Commission, Fair Data Privacy Concerns, and the Anti-Money Laundering Council is pretty quick. It's the keeping up with the report after that's a little bit challenging. So that's the first level, just it's the most basic level, like you have an operator for payment system, which is, uh, yeah. And then next level, you have the remittance um, the remittance centers. So basically, most um, virtual currency exchanges are regulated as these, as money service businesses, which are re required to get a um, this kind of license. So this one is a little bit more, um, takes a little bit more time than before the BSP will issue your certificate of registration. You'll have to present a business plan. You'll have them to walk you'll have to walk through your platform and you'll have to show like testing of your your platform and stuff like that. So it's, it takes a while. It takes a while. Like there's like, uh, several back and forth with the BSP and it takes like six months to a year at the very least. So that's where it takes quite some time compared to if you were just like an operator of a payment system. Mm -hmm. So, uh, have you ever gotten a chance to advise on like mergers and acquisitions, these kinds of transactions? Yes, actually. Um, one of the biggest that we did was with Static Solar when it purchased the interest of the, um, the Norwegian government in certain entities of Static. And one of the things that you will do here is you're going to have to review documents of the companies that will be acquired if you're on the acquiring side. Um, so you basically check that everything is up to par, that no big red flags are are extant. So you, this is probably the little, if we relate this to your earlier question, um, this is probably where it becomes a little bit repetitive. It's basically doc review. You look at uh, secretary certificates, certificates of incorporation, certificates with um, the different government agencies, if they're compliant, you look at contracts, if there's no red flag uh, that's hanging there, like you look at their registration when it comes to land, that if it belongs to them, that there's no mortgage or anything. I mean, you're familiar with this, like you um, checking. <laughs> yeah, basically, you check that everything is um, on the up and up and make sure like, to protect your client's interest if it isn't or flag anything that you think should be flagged. So an example would be for a, let's say, uh, the renewable energy company. Like you see that um, 
a percentage of their stockholders are actually like they actually exceed like 60% of Filipino ownership. So things like that. I mean, most of these companies, like when you, when you get to this big of a level, um, most of them are compliant. And usually like to get to this big of a level, you usually have a team of lawyers behind you. So it's really just making sure that these are crossed and the I's are dotted before you sign off on the transaction. Yeah, it's actually it's actually really funny because like me, I function on a t- totally different level from you because you your your firm obviously specialized in like very large entities. I specialize like at the like the lower end, like individuals, like high net worth individuals, and the like. And you know, like sometimes like my advice gets outright ignored. Like I'm telling them like you know you, sh- you probably shouldn't be buying into a business where like your kadil is like a dummy. You know, like, that's, yeah. like and, I, and I have to explain the inherent merit to like a, a statement like that, and I'm just like. Okay, man. Like, I'm not saying you can't make money doing this. I'm just saying if you have problems and you have to go to court, like, good luck getting that case through, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like at the end of the day, a lot of the things that uh, us lawyers do is so that our clients know, no, don't do that. No, 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 no. So it's a lot of no. So I think like especially going in house. I mean, at a firm, it was easier to say that to tell your client that no, that's not something you can do. But when you go in-house, like, it can't just stop there. It can't just stop that you say no. Like You also have to propose a viable alternative. But these are things that you can look at. These are things that you can do. Especially since you're in-house. Like, you, you basically work for the company. So like, things that um, you can't just stop and say, we can't do that. I mean, especially, for example, if the developers were working on an app and with certain features, and then you tell them, like when they're finished building that app, that oh, this certain um, feature of this app actually violates the law. I mean, that's pretty demotivating for those developers as well. So I guess that's also something you have to juggle when you go in-house. It's not just saying what the law is or what the law does not allow, but it's also saying what the law does allow and what you can do within the legal framework. Okay, so actually, uh, everything that you said before this has marked you out to be like this terribly brilliant person who's an incredible resource and whom anyone would be lucky to have in their organization. So, uh, but well, let's back off from the things that uh, give the impression of you being terribly impressive, and let's let's come back to the more <laughs> relatable aspects of your identity. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you you came from the province and you went to Manila. Right. And you did it, I think, at the age of 21, 20. How old were you when you did it? 19. 19. Yeah, you were young. I remember that much. 19 or 20. Yeah. 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 Around that age. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what was it like? You know, like you did it older than I did. Right. Because uh, I, I went when I was 17. Uh, but what, what was what's that process of being a provinciano and going to Manila? What is what is that like for you? At first, I had really, I had a real difficulty with speaking Tagalog. Like my Tagalog was so bad when I tried to ask directions from a guard. He said, "Mom, English lang po." <laughs> like that's how bad my Tagalog was before. Um, it was a little bit different. Like, um, how do I say this in a way that I mean, I I do I really really love my province, but I think sometimes like knowing what's out there and being out there and experiencing all these different um, things and different people from different backgrounds, it's really a shift. And especially, for example, in Ateneo, you had classmates who were really brilliant in, 
like several fields and like you would really like be inspired by them and like um push yourself harder so to say like it was it was very much a big fish in a small pond to small fish in a big pond situation so that's how it felt like for me but also kind of it also felt like finding like my tribe of people like I still have friends from law school. Even you, one of like you were one of my first friends in law school. I mean, when we rented this house in Palma. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's different in a good way. Like I always have the comforts of my province. Like that's something I'm very secure about. It's something I love about my province. But it's also like coming to Manila. Like it's also really allowed me to broaden my network not only professionally, but also when it comes to my personal network. And that's something I'll always be very thankful about. Well, that's something that's always really difficult to explain because, you know, you, you, you come from relative means if you're the kind of person who comes from the province and goes to Manila at all, right? But there's like a lot of sacrifice that comes with coming from the province and going to Manila. And that's something that maybe people from Manila don't often get. Right. Uh, like uh, w- w- there was one story that my girlfriend relayed to me that I think really encapsulates it. Right. Uh, she was uh, staying in a dorm near Ateneo and uh, her clothes, which she did the laundry herself, uh, were like wrinkly. Right. <laughs> and uh, her her classmates commented, Paano naman yung damit mo? Uh, siguro hahabulin ka ng plancha. Right. You, you're going to be chased by an iron. And, you know, in her, she didn't respond in the moment, but in her head, she was like, I, you know, I'm a dormer. Like, I live alone and I take care of my own laundry, right? And so uh, it's, it encapsulates so much about, like, that, that difficulty that comes with coming from the province and going uh, to Manila. You know, like, you yeah. sacrifice so much, right? Yeah. And, and, like, the relative influence you come from. Like, this is something that personally applies to uh, me in law school, right? Like, I looked at my classmates who were, like, uh, the the sons and daughters of, like, partners in law firms in Manila or yeah. the sons and daughters of, like, justices of the Court of Appeals yeah. or, or, or politicians. And I'm thinking yeah. to myself, like, if I stay here, I have to compete against that. And I don't think I have what it takes, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. if, I, if I can be perfectly frank about it. Is, it, is that something that you feel, you, you, you're terribly accomplished, but do you feel that that observation <laughs> is valid or am I completely mistaken? Well, I want to go backtrack a bit and go to that clothes story. So actually, that was actually a challenge. Now that you remind me of it, like I had, I mean, this is going to sound very privileged, but um like cooking for myself and um, doing my own laundry was something I didn't do on a daily basis. Like I would do it here and there, but not on the base, not on the extent that I did it when I was already living alone. So that was also a growth experience for me. It was just hard the first few months. I'd always like cry for my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was a difficult time, I think, for both of us. Because, I mean, I'm used to spending weeks away from home, like on vacation with my grandparents and all. But it's really different when you don't have another adult and then you realize you're the adult. And um, if you don't do it, these things, like these dishes aren't going to get done. So, yeah, that was a bit of a challenge. And the second part of your question when it came to... um, competing I guess or like Mm. uh with other people from like more privileged backgrounds I think it didn't I wasn't the type I was like there's always this joke that uh one of my closest friends tells me is that 
um, I'm the type to be the last person to know um, who is who or what is what, what is going on in my own section. So that really didn't um, bother me. Like I had a solid friend group. We actually had a very solid class. So that was something that was kind of, um, uh, I don't know the word. Like it was not something that I really thought much of because like everyone like in my class then and in the classes that I eventually was in second, third, and fourth year, we were all very supportive honestly like we had digest groups for certain subjects we had digest group for other subjects and like everyone like really was I mean I had this impression I honestly had that impression initially that oh it's cutthroat world everyone's going to be so competitive and all but I was actually very lucky to be part of classes where um maybe you had one or two people like that and um they would make life difficult for others in your class but the overwhelming majority of people have always been very supportive and that's that's something that I did not expect honestly. I always saw it I saw Athenaeum as this institution where like everyone's super competitive and like no one <laughs> I mean, let's face it, like maybe like there would be some crabs. Like you can't help but not have those types. <laughs> but other than that, no honestly. Like we I I really um owe my success to a lot of those digest groups, especially, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, Digest, it's this digest group I was part of. And we did a lot of um, digest, case compilations, or even like just trying to dissect what the law is to make it more understandable. So I guess the answer, the short answer to your second question is no. Yeah, sorry, wait one second lang, Mark. I have a Lazada delivery. <laughs> hope you don't <laughs> No, it's, it's just uh, I'm I'm buying like uh like alcohol for uh the 3D printer because I'm using a very specialized kind of printing process that's like more suitable for our manufacturing process, and so I had to I have to buy like these large jugs of 99% isopropyl alcohol. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, so my room is like a, a fire waiting to happen. Like everything's flammable. Like it's a wooden floors, wooden walls, wooden wooden everything. <laughs> do you then, at least have an extinguisher? Uh, yeah, maybe I'll get one of those eventually. I'll buy it on Lazada too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, well, the thing is, you say like I think I think just to to comment specifically on like privilege in general. I don't think privilege in general is like a bad thing. I acknowledge also like the role that privilege played in my life to like get me to a point where I could even have the opportunity to. I know. So it's like it's it's like. It's like calling the pot calling the tea pot, the tea kettle black, you know. <laughs> so it's like incredibly ignorant to complain about it. But you know, like in your own life, when you're looking for like what you want to do, uh, it, it helps to think about the place of your greatest influence. And for me, it was in Cebu, and so that's probably that's that played like a large reason, part of the reason why I decided to come back. Now, what were like some opportunities that are present in Manila that are uh, you know, that do not exist in the province, just to really harden the difference between the two? Well, for one, I wouldn't have been able to work for a large firm and be part of all these um, multinational deals with different entities, different large foreign entities wanting to business in the Philippines. If I was in the province, I would say that's one of the biggest difference um, I see, especially. And I think, I'm not sure if it's True, but from what I see in Dumaguete, a lot of it 
um, a lot of the work that you do when it comes to uh, lawyering is litigation. So um, not a lot of corporate work compared to my background, which is probably 80% corp. I mean, I did litigation in the firm, but it's also for big companies with tech cases or um, uh, companies with civil disputes over certain properties. So I think that in that sense, it's similar, but like the majority of my experience is really corporate law. So that's something that I don't think you get much of when it comes to the province. So if you were looking, I think that's also one of the things that I realized when I came back to the Maguete, um, that my big corporate law experience is probably not as helpful. <laughs> as it would be if compared to if I went a lot for a lot of lit. <laughs> that's actually that's actually one of the things that I, I realized also, like particularly uh if I if I went to like a large tax law firm or a tax corporation law firm, as one is wont to do because that's where you get the best bling <laughs> <laughs> um kind of uh back yourself into a corner a little bit because you restrict the kinds of cases for which you will develop that real professional expertise. And yeah. uh, if you do not, if you're not capable of attracting the clientele on your own, which very few lawyers could, uh, like then you? you will be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's not talk about me. This is about you. <laughs> uh, then you uh, you kind of trap yourself essentially into working for these large law firms. So this this is a nice segue also to the next uh, point because you eventually left the law firm life. You know, you decided to stop. Right, which is uh, something people do. Actually, most people don't pursue a career in a law firm. But outside looking in, especially for the non-lawyers, they might not understand why. Why? In your case, why did you decide to leave the firm? Well, I think in my case, I really just um, set the deadline of two years for myself. Like two years for the firm, like a lot of other lawyers do. Like after two years, that's when you um, go find another opportunity. What happened with my um what happened with me was I was actually in Dumaguete. I went home for the pandemic and I was actually working from home for a while. And um Metro Dumaguete Water, which was the newly formed joint venture with the Dumaguete City Water District, um, they were looking for a corporate lawyer in Dumaguete. So one of the partners that I worked for a lot actually recommended the position to me. Um she said that she didn't want to let me go, but like the opportunity seemed perfect and they were already looking for a while. And I guess this also ties in with the fact that not a lot of um, lawyers really specialize in corporate law. And if they did, they also have existing um, lit clients, which would be hard to let go of. Well, I was a baby lawyer. Well, I'm still a baby lawyer. But then, so it made sense, especially with my corporate background. So I took the position and then. Yeah, and then I did corporate law stuff. <laughs> okay, but uh, yeah. like, let's say, let in the hypothetical world where you perhaps did not leave the law firm, what does what would life have looked for you, just for the benefit of any future lawyers or current lawyers who are listening? Well, life would have been would have taken a much well. I don't think it would have taken a much more different turn. I don't see myself. I didn't see myself. Um, making partner that wasn't something I really like saw for myself but I know that there are certain people who also want to um, 
do that track, like do the partner track. And for those who want to do that track, I mean, it's really it's really up to the person what they want to do. Like different strokes for different folks, as I always say. But I will not sugarcoat it. It's hard. It's long hours. It's um, complicated cases that you do not know the answer to. It's um, a lot of stress. But I think if there's one thing I can give as an advice is to find a firm that actually has a good working environment in the sense that the people there are not toxic. Because like any big firm, any big firm in wherever it is, Makati, BGC, Pasi, Mandaluyo, QC, it's always, the work is always going to be hard. So ours are going to be long. But I tell you as someone who's done it before, that the people who you work with are such a big, important factor. And they basically are the difference between the work just being overwhelming and the work being bearable. So, yeah. Mm. So, what are, like, some of the heuristics or the rules that you apply in your own life now, right? Considering, like, you, you uh, well, you were never really on the track to begin with, but you're not in the law firm setting. So, what does success uh, look like for you? Well, that's still, that's still a question I'm find, trying to find an answer to, honestly. Right now, it's, I'm really more like trying to just grind away at my art. So, um, yeah, like just trying to earn as much and um, just trying to find opportunities. Sometimes I also like accept freelance cases, like simple cases which I can advise on or simple contract reviews. Like for me, like that's where it is right now. Success for me would still come in the later years, uh, maybe five years from now. That's actually part of why I move to my new company that in five years I would like to at least be part of a company that operates in the APAC and be part of the uh, general counsel of that company and yeah so like this move actually makes sense for me uh, in, the, in, the, in the way that okay let's scrap that answer let's start again okay <laughs> no worries what does for me look like wait that's it's so mm-hmm. hard it's like, that's such a difficult question Let's just keep the question. I honestly don't know. Like, um, a success for me would look like maybe what? Earning 7 million pesos a month. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, yeah. Well, I, I guess no. It's it, 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 the, the, uh, I'll, I'll cut this down into some way, shape, or form that it makes sense. No. But uh, at least, I guess there's that monetary aspect of it where like, you know, you need to be earning a certain amount of money, but like as to how much that is, like that's constantly changing. Like me personally, uh, when I came to Cebu, I had some early and very quick successes in terms of the amount of money that I was able to make. Right. And that kind of blew my perspective out of the water. Cause I like suddenly money was no longer a problem. Right. Like I came to Cebu and money was very thoroughly a problem. Right. And in very short order, I was able to fix that. And that's something I'm quite proud of. Right. Uh, and now I'm, I honestly don't know, you know, like that, that's one of the things that I struggle with uh, now to, to kind of understand. Like, so what am I working towards? And that's a struggle day to day. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's part of the reason I even made this podcast, because I'm trying to find people. Maybe one of the people I interview will have the answer I'm looking for. <laughs> well, well, if I can say like right now, what I want my life to go like is that 
success is working at a job that allows me to work from home. That's something I will be very certain I don't want to go back to the office. Why? Because I have family in Dumaguete. I have family here in Manila. And I have family in Belgium. If I can, if I am able to continue working from home, I can actually spend like one third of the year at each of those places and be with family. And that's actually very important for me. In fact, I'm actually flying to Belgium um, the latter half of this year because I can, I now can, like I can still continue to work, but I can also be with my family there. So that for me is a little bit of what success looks like. Um, mm. I'm not yet fully there. I don't see how. Um, I I mean I, I I haven't actually implemented it yet. I've only implemented part of the part of my year in Dumaguete, part of my year in Manila. I haven't even implemented my part of the year in Belgium. But it's coming, it's coming, and I hope I'll be able to sustain that for the next few years at least. Mm. So uh, this 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 blends a few of the questions together. But you left the Metro Dumaguete water. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is that, is am I getting that name right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right, and now you transition to a startup space. Like, how does this factor into uh, what you want for yourself in the way of success, and your what? What I guess would be the five-year plan that you have also. Well, I actually saw this ad on Abogado Pinoy for a two to three-year lawyer who was into corporate law and who was open to working from home, but also had interest in the fintech or blockchain space. When I saw that ad, I applied not even one hour later since I felt that that ad spoke directly to me and my experience or, well, I won't say expertise, but at least with my experience in the fintech or blockchain space before. So I always, like, I was at the point in my career where I reassessed where I was going and whether the positions I was in was um, directly contributing to that. And I came to the decision that in five years' time, I would want to be, um, as I shared earlier, part of a uh, general counsel in a fintech or blockchain company in the Asian Pacific Asia Pacific region. So I was thinking that maybe staying at Metro Dumaguete Water would not um, facilitate that a little bit. Maybe I did have experience when it came to contracts and all. But uh, the bigger world experience wasn't there yet. So when I saw this job, I applied um, to the company's actually engine. And we do a lot when it comes to the blockchain and cryptocurrency space. Right now, one of the things that's really taking most of the company's resources is what we call NFTs. So NFTs are non-fungible tokens. So compared to currency and crypto, which are fungible tokens in the sense that they any one crypto is basically equal to another crypto or any like your 20 peso bill is equal to another 20 peso bill. Non-fungible tokens are unique tokens and these usually represent um, either artwork or song or basically digital media. And one of the things that we're trying to do, and one of the things I'm really, really, again, the word excited about, is how this can actually be applied to gaming. So I know Rami, you game sometimes, my brother games sometimes as well, and he's actually been able to sell like skins, items on these different games. And what the company that I'm in, I'm with right now, Engine, is trying to do is to turn these items, the skins, into NFTs, which would allow you to sell eventually and 
you'd have a because of the blockchain you'd have a you'd have a way to make sure that this is a skin that Rami used for five years before he sold it to someone else. And then you'd be <laughs> able to bring it out of the game. And they're also trying to do stuff like um the sword you used in Dota can be used as a sword in Skyrim. Those kinds of interconnected things. So that for me with some for me who was into like law uh, blockchain tech and also into gaming, like it's something that like just made me really very excited when I saw that bot that, that post on Abogadin Pinoy. That's why I applied not even an hour after. <laughs> and then I got in. So right now, um I'm actually going to start tomorrow. That's September thirteen. A very ominous date. But <laughs> yeah. Actually, um, I don't know. This is more of a personal a- anecdote. You know that um, when I started reviewing for my nursing board exam, it was also September 13th. So September 13th always gives me such... I mean, it's a very ominous date for some, but for me, it's always been a date that's bring, brought nothing but good news to me. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting, because no? like, you have this whole gaming culture that you know mm-hmm. is new to the Philippines. And... Well, not naman new. It's been here for a while, but it's only now coming to uh, the main stage, per let's say, right? And it's coming to the basically the forefront of like our culture that you know gaming is something that Filipinos particularly enjoy. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I'm excited for the direction that your your life is going in. Do you think though that uh, in five years' time you'll still be in this field, or you know, you like where 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 what 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 direction you think your life will take after this choice that you've made that uh, is making your September 13 so momentous? <laughs> well, yes, definitely. I mean, we're so we're at least in the Philippines. Uh, we're still in the very early stages of uh, blockchain, crypto, and fintech. And I think it's only going because of all the possible applications. Like I can't even think because of the wide breadth of possible applications it can take. I'm definitely sure that in five years it will still be here, and it's something that I will still be in. Maybe mm. we can do another podcast in five years and see if that holds true. <laughs> and 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 now you see the structure of the podcast and why this is always the last question. Why I so I I assure myself a guest in the future basically. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so you have repeat customers or repeat victims. <laughs> how else are we going to find out if these people eventually became successful? So, and how else am I going to have the audience retention? And but with that, with, with that, Marian, uh, thank you for coming on to my podcast. It was a pleasure to have you on. I'm sure uh, anyone who listens to this episode will have learned a lot, although they will not learn exactly how much time went into editing this because uh, a lot of it was cut out at your request. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd also like to thank everyone who's listening to this podcast right now. I also want to thank, um, okay, so can I do a shout out to my mom, to my dad, my brother, and also to my boyfriend, Dan, who is also listening to me right now. And all to our, all our listeners who joined this podcast, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Okay, that's where I'll cap it. Stop the recording. Stop recording.